Well, good morning, East Vancouver. I invite you to stand with me as we read uh, our text from this morning, from John 1, John 17, and Ephesians 1. So stand with me wherever you are. Let's read this together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Remaining standing, let's pray. Father, not only are your ways higher than ours, but your being is so different than ours that it can be difficult to comprehend just who you are. We thank you, and we do. We thank you that you sent your Son, the light of your glory, and the exact imprint of what you are like. This morning, help us to see your eternal character, your eternal nature, and your eternal heart as we behold your Son. Amen. Well, where we begin matters. Where we start and how we start will shape and inform where we end up. Uh, this is true in both big and small ways in life. I, in a big way or in a practical way, we see this principle at work when you're building something. Uh, perhaps the most famous example of this principle at work can be found in the Leaning Tower of Pisa, beginning with an unstable foundation. Starting there, the tower, as you all know, now leans to one side, famously. This principle is also true in our relational sphere as well. How you start your marriage, what you believe to be true about the nature purpose and, and indeed goal of marriage will change where you end up in your marriage. As Christians, we believe, for example, that marriage is a covenant between two people, two people who we understand will grow and change throughout our lifetimes. Indeed, in one sense, we are married to many different people over the course of our marriage. But for other people, marriage is, is a contract. When you don't give me what I like or what I deserve, then it's over starting from covenant as opposed to starting from a place of contract results in, in two completely different marriages. Where and how we begin, I think in every sphere of our life, determines where we end up. And this is perhaps no more true than when we look at the person of Jesus, than when we look at the Son of God. Uh, today, then, is us assessing our foundation. In fact, today is about God, Father, Son, and Spirit before the foundations of the world. And what I want to do today is walk us through a very simple statement. A simple statement that if we miss or if we get wrong, we end up missing God himself. 
So here's our outline. This one statement I want to walk us through. It goes like this. The Son is God. That's point one. Beloved by the Father. That's point two. Sent for us. Point three. The Son is God. Beloved by the Father. Sent for us. And so point one. The Son is God. We read earlier, and John begins his gospel like this. In John 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. See, whereas all the other gospel writers focus in on the incarnation of Jesus Christ, John gloriously takes us to before the foundations of the world. And the first question we have to ask is who or what is the Word that that John's talking about? See, depending on who you would ask in the first century, the answer would vary. For John's Greek listeners, those who are philosophically inclined, the word was this underlying grand unifying principle that existed, that held together everything. Uh, For some of John's listeners even, uh, the word represented some ideal world that was better, more true than the world that the people currently inhabited. So for for John's uh, Greek, uh, philosophically inclined listeners, the word was this grand unifying principle holding everything together. See, John's Greek listeners, like you and I, noticed that there was a cohesion, a way about the world, something that held it together, something that, that, that was at its foundation. That's how John's Greek listeners heard this term logos or word as reason or, or, or rational uh, underlying principle. For, for John's Greek listeners, sorry, Jewish listeners, however, they understood the word or the logos differently. See, steeped in the Old Testament, steeped in the scriptures of, of Israel, uh, John's uh, Jewish listeners understood that the Lord's word was this reoccurring character. In fact, by the Lord's word, the Old Testament tells us, all things were made. By God's word, in fact, we're told, he rescues people. By God's word, John's Jewish listeners would know, he judges people. By his word, then, God reveals himself to Israel in the Old Testament, what he is like what he's like. And so John writes, let me go back to John 1. John writes, and you have to imagine he has an eye to both audiences, both listeners here, and essentially says this, Greeks, philosophical people, had the logical and rational order that you see, you notice wisely behind all things in creation, and, and, and Jews, the, the self-disclosure of God by his word in the Old Testament, that rational order, and that self-disclosure is now perfectly embodied in the Son. It has indeed always been perfectly embodied in the Son. He continues, if you reread the end of John 1, and you add John 1.14 to it, he says this, and the Word was God. And then he says in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the Word is the Son. We'll we'll see this at the end of our time together a bit more clearly. But but Ephraim the Syrian, 
a fourth century theologian. He helps us understand this title word just a bit more clearly. He says this, that our Lord is called the word because those things that were hidden were revealed through him. Just as it is through a word that the hidden things of the heart are made known. You can know about my character, what I think and believe, indeed love, by the things I say. And that's why here Jesus has this title, the Word. And the Word is the Son. And John says, this Word, who is the Son, was in the beginning. Was in the beginning. Uh, You could read this in the Greek. He was continually existing. He is uncreated. Before the world is made, before any stars light up the night sky, before any dolphins or sharks swim in the ocean, before you and I, before humanity takes a breath, the word was. There was, from eternity past, always existing, the uncreated Son. This truth, that the Son is fully God, fully God, having always existed, is summarized for us quite clearly in the Nicene Creed. Uh, The Nicene Creed, which you can find if you want to refresh yourself, uh, in the preaching handbook, in the series handbook that we've made for you, uh, that you can find on our website. Uh, The Nicene Creed was formulated to combat a heresy at that time that taught uh, that the Son was a created being, that he had not always existed. And so the Nicene Creed reads like this. We believe, and then it says this, In one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, notice, not made, of the same essence as the Father. This Word, who has eternally existed as a Son to the Father, is God, not a different substance, not a created substance, nor a different essence or a created essence, but of the same essence, of the same substance as the Father. The Son is not a created being. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the Nicene Creed tells us. The Son is God. This is the foundation. If we want to avoid ending up in a strange or crooked place come August, this is the foundation that you and I need to build upon. The Son is God. Indeed, always has been God. But but what else can we say about the preexistent Son? Are are we limited uh, to lofty theological pronouncements about uh, the Son, that He is God, one with the Father? Or, Or can we say, does the Bible give us grounds to say something more? For example, what is his relationship like to the Father? Point two, the Son is God, and don't miss this, beloved by the Father, beloved by the Father. First, look back at John 1 with me. In the beginning, John writes, was the Word, and the Word, notice this, was with God, was with God. You and I hear the word with, and, and without thinking, maybe we typically think nothing of it. You know, you had eggs with toast. Uh, I was in a movie theater with a bunch of other people when you called me. With just seems to exist as this sort of throwaway word sometimes for us. 
But there are times, aren't there, when we use the word with to denote some degree of intimacy, don't we? The husband was with his wife in sexual intimacy. The friend sat with their other friend, sat with them as they grieved her recent miscarriage. See, we have with in our vernacular, but we also have with, don't we? With and with. We should think of the latter when we think of the with that John is employing here in John 1. Uh, One translator uh, translated it like this. The word, we could say, was face to face with God. The with that John is using is is helping us to to get a picture of of intimacy, of deep loving relationship. And if deep loving relationship is what is hinted at in John 1, this deep loving relationship between son and father is made explicit in John 17. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. And we have this beautiful picture. If you haven't read John 17, go there. We have this beautiful picture, this beautiful window into the relationship that has always existed between Son and Father. It's it's amazing. And, And Jesus, at the beginning of this prayer, prays for his disciples. But then he turns and prays for all, including you and me, all who would ever follow him all who would ever believe in him. And listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17, 24. He says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. For what purpose? Look at this. To see my glory that you have given me. Why? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Because you loved me me before the foundation of the world. Just as an aside, before we unpack John 17, 24 and the gold therein, as an aside, if you're reading the Bible for like 10 tips to build a better business or or, or 10 tips uh, to build uh, a better friendship, you are missing the good stuff. You are missing the rich stuff. You are missing the, the, the deep stuff. Because what is John 17, 24, if we really think about it, what is John 17, 24 inviting us into? Let me say this. John 17, 24 is inviting us to consider this this huge, mind-blowing, foundational question of what was God doing? What was God doing before the creation of the world? And John 17, 24, it's so rich, tells us that from eternity past, the eternal Father was loving the eternal Son by the eternal Spirit. Now, we could spend a whole lifetime there. Indeed, we should spend a whole lifetime there. The eternal Father was loving the eternal Son by the Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit. And let's just stop for a moment, because I know I'm in danger of losing some of you who think that what I just said is really maybe interesting theologically, maybe interesting on paper, theoretically even, but not important in your life. Let me say this. Let me ask you a question. What difference, what difference does it make that at foundation, God is a father. 
That at foundation, God is an eternally loving Father who has eternally loved His Son. I think it makes all the difference. Let me give you an example. A, a few months back, before all of this, which seems like e years ago, I was sitting down at a restaurant. Remember those? I was sitting down at a restaurant with, with a Muslim friend of mine, and as conversation typically does, it turned to the Trinity. It turned to the Trinity. And we began, we began to talk about why God created, about why God would save, about why God does the things that he, he, he does. See, for my Muslim friend, uh, to talk about God and the Trinity is, is blasphemy. Uh, in Islam, God, yes, has different names, but those different names just refer to different attributes of the one God. And so I asked him, I asked my friend this question, why then, in your view, in your understanding, did God create? Was he lonely? Was he missing something, being all by himself? Was he somehow incomplete by himself, and so he needed to create people in order to be complete, like the Jerry Maguire, you complete me kind of situation? And like a good Muslim, he replied, no, no, no. But ultimately, my friend could not answer the question. He could not give me a why as to why God ever moved beyond himself and acted. He couldn't give me a why. I believe Christianity answers that question. Richard of St. Victor, he's a 12th century theologian. Uh, he, he, he said this, and he argued, that if God were one person, if God were one solitary person, he could not be all loving because he would have had nobody to love from eternity past. We get that. God could not be love in and of himself because he would have nobody to love from eternity past. Further, Richard says this, if God were two persons, father and son, what they would have had between them would have been an exclusive love. If you've ever been a third wheel on a date before, you know exactly what Richard of St. Victor is talking about. It would have been exclusive love between father and son. But if God, Richard says, were three persons, father, son, and spirit, the father and the son then rejoice, rejoice to share their love with and through the spirit. This led, all of this led Richard to conclude that our God, our God is a sharing God, a sharing God. The love that the Father has always been loving the Son with from eternity past has to, by its very nature, move outward like a fountain come over the top, bubble over, if you will. God is a sharing God. Nearly 600 years later, after Richard of St. Victor, a man named Jonathan Edwards, who, who wrote so lovingly and so passionately about Jesus, he penned uh, these words. And I want us to just sit here for a moment. Jonathan Edwards said this, There, even in heaven, dwells a God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was, proceeds. There dwells God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, united as one, in infinitely dear and incomprehensible and mutual and eternal love. And there, listen friends, this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, 
in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love. An ocean of love in which the souls of the ransom may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. The souls of the ransom may bathe with sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. Edwards is, is touching on around the edges of where you and I must go next. The Son is God, beloved by the Father from eternity past, and now sent for us. Jesus prayed in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, and we'll just see in a moment when these were given to the Son, whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The reason why John 17 is so awesome, and like the truest definition of that word, so awesome, is that we're being invited into the heart of the sharing God that St. Richard uh, of St. Victor was talking about. We're being invited in John 17 into the heart of the gospel as to why the Father does what he does, why the Son does what he does, why the Spirit does what he does. Why does the Father send the Son? Because from before the foundations of the world, you and I were already earmarked for the love of God. That's what he's saying. Already set aside from the beginning, from before the beginning to be deluged with the love that the Father has for the Son, to bathe in the ocean of His love as those ransomed by the work of Christ. Our third text today, Ephesians 1, 3-5, it tells us exactly this. Look at what the Apostle Paul says there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, by the way, is in a section in Ephesians where Paul is just bubbling over with praise. Bubbling over with worship, he says this, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Friends, we are beholding a glorious mystery, a mind-bending mystery. Before anything was made, including us, you and I were chosen in Christ to belong to Christ. More than that, deeper than that, in love the Father has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This eternal agreement between the Father and the Son to rescue us, that they made before the foundations of the world, ha has been called by theologians uh, the Pactum Salutis. The Pactum Salutis. If you want to spend your Sunday Googling uh, nerdy theological Latin words, I'll put it up on the screen for you. The Pactum Salutis. It's the Son and the Father agreeing for the foundations of the world to rescue a people. A covenant of redemption. A plan of redemption. It has always been, you see, 
the heart of the eternally preexistent God, not only to create in love or create from a place of love, and we'll see that next week, but it was always in his heart to rescue in love, to redeem us, save us in love. And the way to rescue, the, the way he would do this, the way to, to salvation is through the eternally preexistent son who became flesh, we read this in John, and dwelt among us and bore the name of Jesus. A name, a name which means he will save his people from their sins. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? If you're listening and you're a follower of Jesus, let me speak to you first. Did you know? You might know, but did you know in your head and in your heart that you were chosen before the foundations of the world? Your salvation, your rescue, did not, does not, and will not come as a result of your efforts, as a result of you earning it, as a result of you, quote-unquote, deserving it. It is an eternally predestined gift that comes from the heart of the loving God, the eternally loving God. And still, and yet, we were chosen, as Ephesians tells us, to be holy and blameless. Our actions do matter. Our thoughts do matter. Act, our text is saying, like who you were predestined to be, like who you were called to be before the foundations of the world. See, love changes us. It, it has to change us if it's truly love. Think about it this way. If God's love has been poured into our hearts, indeed, that's what, what scriptures tell us, that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit. If God's love has been poured into our hearts, we have to ask, well, what kind of love is this love? As we've seen, it's a sharing love. It's a moving outward love. It's a love, therefore, that has to manifest itself in our life as it moves outward, as we love God first and foremost and love others. If God's love has possessed us, you could say, then it ought to manifest itself. It has to manifest itself in holiness and blameless. Indeed, we are his children. We, we, we cannot do anything else. So Christian, you have a great word of assurance this morning. You have a great reminder to act who you've eternally been called to be. But maybe you're listening and you're not a follower of Jesus. And you're not a follower of Jesus. First, thank you for, for being with us digitally, virtually this morning. But as we'll see next week, made in the image of a loving triune God, we were made to love. And I think you know this. You and I were made to love. To love one another, and, and above all else, to love our, our Father. But, but the love that was supposed to extend to our Father and then to other people has what theologians called curved in on itself. And that love that was meant to move outwards because we've been possessed by the love of a sharing God is now curving in on itself. And we do not love and therefore do not do the things we ought to do. We are not the people that we ought to be. We cannot be who we were made to be. It's impossible. It's impossible, that is, until the eternal fountain of love spilled out into our lives through the person and work of Jesus. 
See, all of this is, is, is nicely and tidily summarized by what John writes elsewhere in John 1, uh, for, uh, chapter 4. In, in, in 1 John, chapter 4, rather, he says this. Whoever does not love does not know God. That's what I just said. Christians hear that. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Then he says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Then he says this. This is love. Not that we love God. Not that we did that. Because we didn't. On our own, we did not do that. But that he loved us, that he moved towards us in love and sent his son to do what? To act as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The pre-existent son is not simply good news for theology nerds, for those who want to have intellectual debates. It is good news for sinners like you and me and sufferers like you and me everywhere. For all of us at the cross, and I cannot wait to get to the cross in this series, but at the cross, the Son, for all the world to see, displays for us, displays for all time, the love that has always existed between the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. We see this love perfectly exemplified, perfectly on display, vivid, at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who acted as an atoning sacrifice in our place for our rebellion and for our hatred, for our failure to love. Friends, believe in Jesus. Christian, believe in Jesus. Person who isn't following Jesus listening today, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus. Right now, take the time to pray and trust in Jesus. Cry out to him, say, Jesus, I cannot do this on my own. I need you to come by your love and change me. And he will, he will. The Son is God, beloved by the Father, sent, sent in the person and work of Jesus for us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that there is much of what we've considered today that is above us. And yet, even in that, we're reminded that you are not a God that we can control, a God that is under us and under our rational thinking and our, and our scheming and our planning, but indeed, you're glorious and above us. And as we prayed earlier, your ways are not like our ways. Your being as creator is not like our being as creations, the created. And so, Jesus, we ask, we ask, Jesus, that you would, by your love, come to us. By your spirit, change us. That we might be the people you have eternally predestined us to be. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.